At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, with Israel continuing their war against Hamas, we offer a report following a visit to a nation forever changed. It's hard to even put into words kind of, you know, some of the things that they're experiencing right now, but um, in the atrocities, to be honest with you, uh, they kind of transcend uh, really kind of language. And why it's not just about Israel. This is a civilizational battle. This is a cultural battle. And uh, that's why you've got to stand with the Jews. We'll also share a helpful perspective from Pastor Robert Jeffress. Be sure you're ready for the end times by being dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from the Pacific Northwest and my home station of KPDQ in Portland and from Seattle on 820 AM, The Word. I invite you to catch the stream of my program at kpdq.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with Israel, where the Israeli Defense Force struck Hamas targets in southern Gaza. And we've seen widespread criticism and condemnation, not of Hamas and their terror campaign that resulted in the largest single-day slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust, but of Israel and their efforts to fight and destroy the terror group Hamas. Tim Head is the executive director of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. He recently returned from the region to witness the fallout from the October 7th attack on Israel. He was a guest on my program. Now, I I commend you for having recently been to Israel and joining us today to give us some insight of what you observed there. Um, The Faith and Freedom Coalition uh, took a trip to Israel to witness the tragedy and to demonstrate solidarity with the Jewish people. Tell us a little bit about that trip. It it, uh, appears to have been uh, very productive and certainly telling. So we, uh, I think there's there's a lot of layers to a, to a trip like that, and and frankly, um, especially at such a, a volatile mm-hmm. um, kind of heightened moment like this for uh, um, all these Israelis that uh, that really, you know, in many ways are kind of fighting for their life. And so, you know, while a lot of other people are kind of heading for the exit, so to speak, um, you know, I think that they they've been really impacted to, to see, you know, certainly not just just the Faith and Freedom Coalition, but those. That have come kind of into the fire, into the burning building, uh, it really means just that much more uh, to them. And, uh, and I, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, look, you know, it's hard to even put into words, kind of, you know, some of the things that they're experiencing right now. But uh, I mean, the atrocities, to be honest with you, uh, they kind of transcend uh, really kind of language to, to talk about some of the experiencing. Um, that they have experienced in the last, you know, on October the 7th and 8th. Um, but I, I think that, that the, one of the huge, huge takeaways right now is the continued resilience of Israelis and Jewish people uh, and also the profound impact that it has when people like uh, like us on that trip and, and, and certainly like, you know, your listeners, when they learn that, that others uh, from America and around the world are standing with them in solidarity, their their appreciation and gratefulness really 
um, is, is, uh, is it's almost palpable when you're standing there with them. In addition to sharing your observations, you also offer some advice what the United States should do in response to what happened on October the 7th and what should happen now. I think many of us are concerned that um, the president uh, might be uh, teetering in his support of Israel and what should happen next. But you offer a list of things that you're asking Congress to do, specific actions and focus that would help. Can you walk us through some of those recommendations that um, that you ha- are suggesting? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, just uh, just this week, uh, earlier this week, um, uh, the leadership of Faith and Freedom Coalition went and spent two days uh, in, in Washington, D.C., either on the Hill or, or meeting with journalists to kind of articulate these these things. You know, it, it definitely it's important uh, sentimentally, I think, for us to be able to, to, quote, stand with Israel. But I think there are very specific pieces of policy that, uh, that the United States and, and some other um, um, allied uh, countries around the world can take. Uh, so, you know, clearly the, the biggest piece right now for us is continuing to fund uh, as as um, as Israel's response to uh, to Hamas uh, continues on. Uh, obviously, this the, the defensive measures of the Iron Dome, et cetera, uh, continue to need funding. Uh, and then secondly, um, you know, they need they need resources to be able to do these surgical strikes. They're doing everything they can to only extract uh, and degrade Hamas and, and to, to minimize any collateral or, or civilian casualties there, uh, that actually makes it even more expensive. Instead of just mm-hmm. kind of uh, haphazardly bombing or whatever, they're actually doing surgical targeted exercises. Um, and so, uh, you know, and then secondly, I think uh, it's really important for us all across the world, frankly, to understand how close that Saudi Arabia was and really continues to be in normalizing relations with Israel. So you know, that's kind of a fancy word. It just means that they're close to actually having normal trade relations and diplomatic relations with the Israeli government, which, um, frankly, until about four years ago, no Arab country um, would diplomatically interact with Israel. And so uh, for Saudi Arabia, the largest economy in the Middle East, to normalize trade and to, to literally do business with Israel would be revolutionary in that region, which is why Iran does not want that to happen. Yes. And so we believe the United States needs to be able to kind of help be a mediator, if you will, in that Saudi Arabian-Israeli uh, relationship. How likely do you think it is that Congress will act in a way that will strengthen and reinforce our support of Israel and reinforce our resolve uh, to oppose um, anti-Semitism uh, and those who would seek not only to to uh, damage and destroy Israel, but as one person said, the the Saturday people first, the Sunday people next. Yeah, great, great, uh, great question, and I think that's a, a fair way to articulate this. Uh, I, I would say honestly. Uh, I'm actually quite optimistic that uh, so uh, we we enumerated seven specific kind of uh, uh, either bills or categories uh, that we believe that uh, that the United States can and should uh, take. Uh, to be honest with you, I think that five of those are, are very likely to happen, um, and, and frankly, several of them even between uh, between now and, and the end of the year. So look, I'm I'm optimistic. You know, we're going to push hard uh, from our vantage point at Faith and Freedom Coalition, and I expect uh, to see re- results here in the next four to six weeks. Well, that's encouraging uh, to hear. I know there's some debate going on right now uh, as to whether or not funding for Israel is part of a larger package or if it should be uh, done separately. Is that delay going to have a significant impact on uh, Israel's ability to move forward and to keep its commitment to its own people to eradicate Hamas from the region? 
Yeah, our position basically, and we just delivered this uh, in person, this message in person uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, is uh, that uh, meaningful conversations, to be sure, on the United States inter- uh, role in Ukraine and similarly on border security. Those are very important questions, but we also don't want those divisive partisan challenges uh, to be obstacles to funding getting to Israel that we is uh, is probably an 85% support in in um, in Congress, and so I I, I think that uh, one way or the other, we'll just put it that way, uh, mm-hmm. we believe that that Israel is going to get that funding um, by by the new year. The war in the Middle East is the most significant conflict since the nation's founding. Those who are familiar with the history know that's saying something. Since 1948 and the nation's founding in the modern age, Israel's history has been punctuated by wars and intifadas. So it's not strange that a number of Christians have been asking, what does what's happening in Israel mean, biblically and eschatologically? Robert Jeffress is the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas. He's also the voice of Pathways to Victory and the author of Are We Living in the End Times? He was a guest of Scott Furrow on KKLA in Los Angeles. You know, when you study anthropology, people groups from all over the place, going all the way back to however far back we can go, ancient Egypt, and there's a sense that there will be an end of the world somehow, someday. I think that everybody is expecting that. What should we do to get prepared for that? Well, I think, first of all, we ought to realize the end is coming, like you said, for us individually, if not for uh, the world as a whole. Both are going to happen. I had a fascinating experience uh, about 10 years ago. I was on Fox News with the late Alan Combs, Mm -hmm. who used to be the resident liberal at Fox News. And when I first started there, he became a great friend. He would have me on his show all the time, even though he was Jewish, always give me a chance to share the gospel. And one time he said, Pastor, do you believe you'll be alive to see Jesus return to earth one day? I said, Alan, I don't know, but you know what? It really doesn't make any difference. He said, what do you mean it doesn't make any difference? I said, well, I'm 58 years old, and I know in the next 30 years, either he's coming or I'm going, but the end is coming closer and closer for me and for you, and we better be ready for it. And I would say, Pastor, that's the most important thing to do, is to be sure you're ready for the end times by being dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. But I think it goes beyond that. I mean, seeing that the end is coming, we need to be more fervent and preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with as many people as we can. We don't need to hunker down. We don't need to get in our holy huddle. This is a time for Christians to be on the move and to be sharing the gospel. Lowe's knows how to save pros time and money. Right now, save over $40 on a Werner six-foot stepladder. Was $115, now just $69.98. And there's more. Get up to 30% off select kitchen cabinet orders. Visit us in-store or online for more deals you can't beat. Lowe's Knows Savings. Lowe's Knows Pros. Valid 12-7 to 12-13 on item number 98148. While supplies last, minimum purchase and exclusions apply. See associate for details. At Stoneville Cotton, we love a good old-fashioned troublemaker. Like folks who grew up crashing mud puddles in their Sunday best, then took on running the family farm. You're our kind of people. And now, Stoneville is engineered with new Accent Flex technology, Cotton's first quad-stacked herbicide trait. Stoneville Cotton, specifically innovative for changemakers, yield setters, and troublemakers. Always read and follow label directions. 
That's right. And you've got a new book, uh, Are We Living in the End Times? And this book is uh, very much a response to what happened in Israel on October 7th. Let's talk about that for a minute. What was your initial thought with all of this? You know, Pastor, what most people don't understand is God promised Israel, unlike any other nation, the promise of endurance. They would endure forever. And ever since God made that promise, not 75 years ago, 4,000 years ago, God made that promise. Ever since that time, Satan has tried to disprove God. He's tried to destroy Israel. He's done it with human leaders like Pharaoh, Herod, Antiochus Epiphanes, Adolf Hitler. We're all satanically inspired to try to destroy God's chosen people to show that God's impotent and can't keep his promise. And that's why what we saw in Israel over this last month, this is not Hamas attacking Israel. This is Hamas and its sponsor Iran waging war against Almighty God. And that is a war nobody can win. And for everybody listening, you know, maybe you're listening and uh, you are, you don't really know the Bible very well. And that can be somebody who goes to church and somebody who doesn't. You, maybe you don't understand the Christian faith. How does somebody come to Jesus, uh, Pastor, somebody who's listening right now who's saying, you know what, I think you're right. There's something different about Israel and this conflict, and it's stirring in my soul. How does somebody respond to that? Well, like Tip O'Neill used to say, all politics are local, and so is religion. It's not about how does it affect somebody else. The question is, what's going to happen to me when I die, when I come to my end of times? And the most important thing in life is to be in a right relationship with God. People ask me all the time, is this group going to be in heaven, or is this group People don't go to heaven in groups. We go one by one based on our relationship with God. The only people who are going to be in heaven are forgiven people, people who have trusted in Jesus, who came 2,000 years ago to die for our sins. And when we come to that point that we are sorry for our sins and we believe with all of our hearts that Jesus took the penalty for our sin— and when we place our faith in him and not in ourselves, we have eternal life. And that's the best way to prepare for the inevitable end times, whether it's the end of the world or our end. Coming up, it's not just about Israel. This is a civilizational battle. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Israel's war against Hamas is first and foremost an existential struggle for the Jewish state. After the horrors that unfolded on October 7th, Israelis recognize that they cannot live with a Gaza that maintains Hamas as its head and retains the capacity and strength to inflict future harm. The world may rail against Israel's self-defense, but for them, for Israel, never again is now. And while this conflict is very personal to Israelis, there is a broader sense, a civilizational sense, that this is also very much about us. Jeff Hunt, the director of the Centennial Institute at Colorado Christian University, was a guest of Gino Geraci on 94.7 FM, The Word, in Denver. 
in the last 1700 years, Jews have been expelled from 80 different countries. Okay. And, and, but there seems to be to your point that the U S was a safe haven, but there seems to be almost a supernatural demonic lifting of some sort of restraint where people are now talking publicly about their animosity, their hatred for the Jewish people. And to me, anti-Semitism seems too weak of a word, Jeff, to, to describe what, what we're seeing. Oh, it's evil. You're exactly right. It is a spiritual battle. And uh, in all my conversations, I'm on conversations daily with Jewish leaders. The first words out of their mouths just to us is thank you. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for standing with us. And we're happy to do that. I mean, this is um, I've always been the best guy, Gino, the best friend to have in a bar fight. Um, Uh We're going I'm going down with you. And uh, this is what I've told Jewish leaders, too. Uh, This is a civilizational battle. They are in the right. They have every right to defend themselves from what happened on October 7th. And we will be there with them all the way. So uh, we've been for years developing friendships with Jewish leaders. Don Sweeting and I went to Israel mm-hmm. in April with Jewish leaders uh, for the opening of the Museum of Tolerance. Uh, and uh, the president of Israel was there. It was really a powerful Herzog. event. Mm-hmm. Um, Herzog, that's right. So, I mean, Jews create – listen, there is a museum of tolerance in Israel. There's not a museum of tolerance in these other nations that are attacking Israel. That's why Israel's different. So we were there for that. Um, but Rabbi Hillel Goldberg, who's the editor of the Intermountain Jewish News, it's the largest regional Jewish newspaper, has a wonderful history of building bridges. And I went there. Uh, if you tour their offices, his father, who started the newspaper, has got pictures of him and Billy Graham, him and Martin Luther King, him and Jack Kennedy. Um, he understood that Jews needed to be building those bridges and be right in the center of changing culture. And so he inherited this great legacy. We asked we sat down with Rabbi Hillel Goldberg, said we wanted to do this night. Who would you recommend we include? And they and he laid out a list of people that he recommended that we include. So it's been a great partnership with our Jewish friends. Um, and uh, we're going to have a kosher dinner. So it gives you a sense of we're going the extra mile mm-hmm. to make sure that they feel comfortable and included. But they are incredibly lonely right now in this culture, in the opposition, in the anti-Semitism that they're facing. And to step up and to just call your Jewish friends, to let them know you support them, that is step one. That's absolutely mm-hmm. important. But two, if you're working in a place or you have, uh, the principal of a school, teacher of a school, are, our Jewish friends are incredibly worried for their own safety. And so mm-hmm. we need to go the extra mile at our workplaces, at our schools, to make sure that they know we're adding security to make sure that they're safe because – Gino, you are exactly right. This is not just a one-off political issue. This is a spiritual issue, and they are facing an unprecedented attack of evil against them. So we need to take and go that extra mile to make sure that they feel safe and we're there to support them. Yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on the idea of the world hating both the Jew and the Christian because in a very real sense – I'm not trying to be overly self-serving, but it just seems to me that there, ours is a spiritual battle right now. Yeah, yeah. Anti-Semitism is generally considered the world's oldest hatred. 
because it is tied directly to God's people, right? And there's this kind of anger that you have that you're taking out on people that has nothing to do with them. They're they're an incredibly quiet, wonderful, productive community, right? They provide so much for our community. So it's not rooted in anything that's, that they're actually doing to people. It's rooted in an anger to God. And and so you're frustrated about the fact that that uh, that God is speaking into this world. He's delivering truth to this world through the written word. We didn't have that prior to Moses sitting down and writing the Pentateuch and um, creating that system that we got to inherit as Christians um, that brought, like you just mentioned, the patriarchs all the way through to Jesus. This is part of our history. This is part of our traditions. So yes, stand with our Jewish brothers and sisters against this hatred towards God. Do we have theological differences? Absolutely, we have theological differences. But my goodness, uh, we bring such an inheritance from them into our world, and they are under such vicious attack, ungodly, evil, angry, vitriolic attack to a point where American Jews have never experienced this before in their lives. This is a wonderful time for Christians to shine, to stand alongside them, and to say we're not going to tolerate this in our country. Uh, We're facing a culture. This is all interwoven together. The anti-Semitism on college campuses, the the hatred towards the Jews that's taking place out there. Um, All of this is intertwined with a culture that is rejecting God. That's right. the, that's the ultimate truth of it. And so we stand alongside them because not only do we believe in human dignity, we believe that the God is active and governs in the affairs of men, that, that he has a plan on how to create a flourishing society. Look at our cultures. Our cultures rejected God more and more, Gino. You have more homelessness, you have more drug overdose, you have more violence, you have more crime. By every metric, our culture is getting worse and worse. And there are those of us, Jews and Christians alike, that stand up and say, God, there is a God, and he's speaking into this culture, and we should listen to him. And it's that hatred that's leading to rising anti-Semitism on college campuses. It's all a spiritual issue. Well, all the more reason to invite a spiritual solution you know, what a great privilege we have to pray, to pray as a community, to pray and ask God to act, to pray that there's a bridge to peace. You know, I can't help but think of the New Testament greeting that Paul gave so long ago, grace and peace. Grace precedes peace, but real peace, lasting peace is going to require a lot of grace. It's You've got the irony can't be lost on you that earlier this year you visited the Museum of Toleration. Yeah, you know, Jewish and Christians and even Muslims were there. Uh, This is a this is a civilizational battle. This is a cultural battle. And uh, that's why you've got to stand with the Jews. There are civilizations that embrace tolerance. We may not agree on everything, but we tolerate because we recognize, as you said, you know, human dignity. But then you have cultures that barge in and kidnap 10-month-olds and 2-year-olds and rape and pillage and burn people alive. 
And uh, I'm going to be on the side of, of the Jews on this one. Absolutely. Coming up, Nancy Piercy. You can buy T-shirts that say so many men, so little ammunition. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. It's become fashionable today to hate men, to point out how men, particularly white men, are the source of all that ails us. It's what Nancy Piercy in the title of her book calls The Toxic War on Masculinity and How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. The veteran author was a guest of Eric Metaxas. Why did you choose to write this book of all the things you might have written about? Well, my eye was certainly caught by how incredibly hostile our culture has become to masculinity. The Washington Post had an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? And that was my wake-up call. I said, wait, in a respected mainstream publication like this, a Huffington Post editor tweeted, hashtag, kill all men. And you can buy T-shirts that say, so many men, so little ammunition. And there are books with titles that are very blunt, like, I hate men, and no good men, and are men necessary? So my initial reason for writing the book was I just wanted to understand where is this coming from and how can we counter it more effectively? Well, it's interesting. I, I, obviously, this has been in the culture for quite some time, and it's gotten particularly pointed uh, in, in more recent years. But we're seeing an attack on the one hand on men. We're seeing an attack on women, and it's attack on God. There's no question in my mind that this is all an attack on God. But I'm, I'm so glad that you focused. I mean, you've really homed in on various aspects of this war on masculinity in the book and on the roots. So why don't we start with how this developed? I, I, I think a lot of people don't really understand how this has been worked out in history. You know, what 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 was a man and a father uh, in the 19th century, for example, and how that led to the, And you deal with that in the book wonderfully. So why don't we start there? A lot of people would say, oh, well, this hostility to masculinity perhaps came out of the 1960s, second wave feminism, but it actually started much further back. And this was a surprise when I started researching the book. You have to go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, because prior to that, men worked with their wives and their children all day on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the cultural expectation on men focused much more on their caretaking role. Uh, in fact, here's a his- historical fact that was very surprising. Most of the books and literature written on parenting back then addressed fathers. If you go in a typical bookstore today, they're mostly addressed to mothers. But back then, fathers did spend just as much time with their children as mothers did. And I love it when even secular historians bring out the Christian perspective that was very strong in the colonial era. So one historian says, 
masculine virtue was defined as duty to God and man. So that sense of duty, where did we lose that? Well, it really started with the Industrial Revolution because it took work out of the home. And of course, men had to follow their work out of the home. And for the first time, you know, they're working in factories and offices. They're not working with people they love and have a moral bond with, with their, with their families. And that's when you see the literature start to change. People started to protest. They didn't like what they were seeing. They began to protest that men were becoming uh, individualistic, egocentric, self-interested, greedy and acquisitive. I'm using the language of the day. And even making their career into an idol, you know, their career success, their financial achievements. So the, this was the first time negative language was applied to the male character. And of course, if the problem was men getting disconnected from their families, that does suggest what the most important solution is, which is reconnecting men to their families, which you know, I have a whole chapter on that as well. But that's how far back you really have to go to find people very explicitly arguing that the male character has become degraded. But what's interesting to me is how it's anybody who has a biblical worldview understands this is perfectly unbiblical. The, the idea to demonize any group, it's exactly like racism. To demonize men, to demonize women, to suggest that they are intrinsically flawed is a satanic project. And we're seeing it happen. Obviously, we're seeing it happen with men, but we're seeing the same thing happen with really the erasure of women. And ultimately, it's an attack on God and God's view of men and women. Well, exactly. Um, I mean, even in the 19th century, since you asked the historical question, you see people start to say, you know, the father is the prototype of God in the family. And yet all of a sudden he's not here. You know, we're used to being uh, men being out of the home all day. But back then it was a shock. Like, where are the fathers? Uh, one, the leading psychologist of the day said, our boys are now half orphaned because their fathers were not in the home. And so I wanted to see why was this cultural shift? It was because, like you say, because the father is the prototype of God in the family. Coming up, this gives a much bigger scope for men who, like you said, are doers, who want to accomplish, who want to have an impact, who want to achieve, who want to have mastery. That's what the Bible actually does call them to. More on the toxic war on masculinity when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Nancy Piercy, in her book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, is not simply pointing out how destructive devaluing men has become. She also points us toward the Christian cultural mandate, the essential and positive role of men in Scripture. Let's continue with more of Nancy Piercy with Eric Metaxas. Well, I, th I really do think that, you know, sometimes these bad symptoms are a sign of deeper health in the sense that I think young men are looking for real masculine role models. And to a large extent, they haven't found that in churches. Churches, as you well know, uh, have been 
feminized. This is going back into the 19th century in America. But but in this century, the virtues that seem to be uh, held out are to be nice, to be winsome. And of course, there's a place for winsomeness, but there's also a place to be a warrior. And a lot of that stuff has been bleached out of even the church's version of what it is to be a man. So it's, it's no wonder, really, that men, especially young men, are attracted in these various directions. Yes, you know, a lot of it's because we've lost the notion of the cultural mandate. In my book, I bring people back frequently to the cultural mandate, which is in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God's created the universe. He creates the first human couple. And then what is the very first thing he says to them? Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. So that's your purpose. That's why I created you. And in the streamlined language of Genesis 1, we can unpack that. You know, it doesn't mean just have families, but historically, all of the social institutions grow out of the family. The family becomes a clan, a village, a nation. You need social institutions for specific purposes, like you need a state, you need a church, you need a school, you need a marketplace. And so this is a very rich calling for both men and women, but we're talking about men here, you know, that their job is to build up all of the social environment. And then subdue the earth means harness the natural resources. So most societies start with agriculture, but then also technology and so on. Nancy, you were just saying um, effectively that men are doers. Uh, uh, they, they, they like to do, they like to act. And to some extent, many churches... Um, have turned Christianity into this theological, ecclesiastical project, which it is not. It is meant to take over the whole person, all of our lives. We're supposed to take our theology into the whole world uh, to make the world a better place, and on and on and on and on. And that, it seems to me, you were just saying, lies at the root uh, of why men often are, are less attracted to church environments and to church life, and why often it's women that are more involved in churches. Exactly. The church has been privatized. Christianity has been privatized. And as a result, most of us tend to think of Christianity in terms of just the sort of specifically religious activities, going to church, going to Bible study, praying, and so on. And that's not what men and women were called to originally. You know, in a sense, we could say, when we sin, we get off the track. When God saves us, we get back on, to, on the track. But what was the track? The track was the cultural mandate, which calls men to be in, you know, roll up their sleeves and be involved in building up the entire social world, including the laws and constitutions and treaties that govern it. And then secondly, build up the natural world in terms of technology and inventions, making computers, composing music. One of my students once said, what, composing music? Really? And I said, well, I play the violin. What's the violin made out of? Wood. What's the bow made out of? Horsehair. So all the transcendent beauty we associate with music starts with harnessing the raw materials of nature. And that's what the cultural mandate is about. It means uh, that this verse, uh, as theologians interpret it, means that our calling was to build cultures create civilizations, make history. And so this gives a much bigger scope for men who, like you said, are doers, who want to accomplish, who want to have an impact, you know, who, who want to achieve, who want to have mastery. That's what the Bible actually does call them to. And that's the vision that our churches need to communicate to men. Well, you talk in the book about how religion uh, is often cast as a cause of domestic abuse, which is a sick joke, but people say these things. 
you, you say that research shows that authentically committed Christian men test out as the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. They have the lowest rates of divorce and domestic violence of any group in America. Living as a Christian man and knowing uh, an infinite number practically of Christian men and families, that makes perfect sense to me. So this secular, this vile secular lie, it needs to be pushed against. Yeah, I kind of stumbled across this sociological data on Christian men um, because, you know, we've all heard the secular narrative. I'll I'll give you just one example. This was the co-founder of the Church Two movement. And she said the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. And so social scientists were listening to these accusations and saying, well, where's your evidence? You're making these charges, but where's your data? And so they went out and did the studies, and I cite about a dozen studies in my book. And surprisingly, they found out that evangelical men who attend church regularly, whose faith is authentic, who are committed, actually test out at the top in the sense of being the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. Their wives report the highest level of happiness. Uh, Evangelical men spend the most time with their children, 3.5 hours more per week than secular men. Evangelical couples divorce at the lowest rate, 35% lower than secular couples. And then the real surprise is that they actually have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any group in America. So... I'll give you one quote, because a quote can sometimes summarize it. The sociologist who did the largest study was Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. And to give you a sense of his stature, he writes in places like the New York Times. So this is a quote from a New York Times article he wrote. He said, and this is a direct quote, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. They're focusing on the wives, of course, because the assumption is these marriages are oppressive. But no, the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of women who hold conservative gender values and attend church regularly with their husbands have high-quality marriages. And then he turns to his secular colleagues, because sociology is a very secularized discipline. And this is my favorite part of the quote, actually. He says, academics need to cast aside their prejudices against religious conservatives and against evangelicals in particular. Evangelical Protestant married men with children are consistently the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. So this is not a pep talk from a religious leader. This is solid empirical evidence. This is research data that we can confidently bring into the public square to debunk the secular narrative about evangelical men. Coming up, bring this data into the churches and really encourage and support and affirm the men who are doing a good job. A few more thoughts from Nancy Piercy. Stay with us. AM radio provides always on news, sports, talk, traffic, and weather reports. And it's also a vital service that provides important emergency information when your community needs it most. Tell Congress you need AM radio to stay in your car. Because when cell phones and the Internet are down, this free emergency service is critical. And when you don't have electricity, radio in the car is often your only lifeline. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. When it comes to marriage and divorce and the faithfulness required in the parenting of children, 
Christianity doesn't matter. Or so we've been told. For example, we've been told that divorce rates in the church are just as bad or worse than those of the culture at large. In truth, we know that Christianity does matter. Let's pick up with more of the conversation between Eric Metaxas and Nancy Piercy. I think, you know, data only works for people who are open to the truth and are open to these things, because I would suspect strongly that most people in the academic world, they bought into another narrative and they cannot possibly take Brad Wilcox's statistics at face value. They believe in their heart of hearts. There's no way this can be true, because if it were true, it would upend my whole narrative, not just my narrative uh, about what evangelical Christians are like or about the patriarchy. So many people have a very confused view of what Christianity is. Many people live out their faith in a way or identify as Christians, and they're not actually living as Christians. Um, so maybe talk about that for a moment, because when you, when you say how Christianity reconciles the sexes, I know for a fact that that is correct, but people have a perception. They don't, they don't understand that. Exactly. Well, and this is a pushback I always get. For example, I always get the pushback, haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of the culture? So the researchers went back to the data and they separated out men who are truly convicted, who go to church regularly from nominal Christians. And in America, we have a lot of cultural Christians. So this means in name only. Right. And these are men who on a survey like this might check the Baptist box, for example, but who attend church rarely, if at all. And they test out shockingly different. They actually fit all of the toxic stereotypes Their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They actually spend the least amount of time with their children. They divorce at the highest rate of any group, 20% higher than secular couples. And then the real shocker is they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any group in America, even higher than secular men. And so this is why the statistics are so skewed. Most people don't make this distinction. You know, they have the so they have men who are better than secular men and men who are worse than secular men. And that's why the statistics are so misleading. And it does suggest, of course, that the church has quite a difficult task. How can we, on the one hand, really support men who are doing well? You know, the, the church has a tendency to scold men. Uh, one of my graduate students works for a large Baptist church here in Houston, and she said, on Mother's Day, we hand out roses and tell the women they're wonderful. On Father's Day, we scold the men and tell them to do better. So we need to stop that. Bring this data into the churches and really encourage and support and affirm the men who are doing a good job. And then on the other hand, how do we reach out with an effective discipleship program to these nominal men who, in a sense, are ruining the reputation of evangelicals because they actually are worse than secular men? This is the balance that churches now need to strive for. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, take a moment to sign up for our podcast at ChristianOutlook.com. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. It's Macy's One Day Sale now with great deals of the day on gifts we love, like 60 to 65% off warm and stylish coats for everyone. 35 to 70% off fine jewelry she'll adore and 75% off holiday decor for a cozy, welcoming home. 
Best of all, everyone gets $10 Macy's money for every $50 spent. Learn more at Macy's.com slash Macy's money. Savings off sale and clearance prices. Exclusions apply.